Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast. I'm Dave Sharp, Marketing Consultant for Architects at VanityProjects.com. Today, I'm joined by Paul Keegan. Paul is an architect and co-founder of SK Group, an architecture and construction company based in Melbourne, which he and his business partner, Rodney, co-founded in 2013. SK Group have built projects for some of Melbourne's best-known architects and interior designers, including Golden, Studio Aesthetic, and Flax Studio. They've also designed and built residential and commercial projects for private clients. Paul has also recently launched a new business called Terran, where they offer a range of ready-to-build house plans that clients can either build with SK Group or take to a builder of their choice. In this conversation, Paul and I discuss his strategies for calculating and communicating fees to his clients, deciding whether or not to take on projects, making your team's output more consistent and predictable, standing out from competitors by offering new services and partnerships, building referrals from your professional network, the importance of treating every lead with professionalism and dignity, and we also discussed why you need to be prepared to experiment and learn from mistakes as a marketer, how to come up with content for social media, how to build your professional connections through warm introductions, the lessons Paul learned from launching Terran without a, without a single built project, and the importance of developing new skills as the business owner. So there's a lot there. A quick note on the production of this episode, I was wearing in a brand new microphone when I recorded this conversation with Paul, and I didn't have my settings quite right. So please ignore the harsh audio when I get a bit too loud and a bit too fired up. It won't be an issue in future episodes. So tech issues aside, I hope you enjoy this episode with Paul. I start off by asking him about his journey from architecture to construction. Doing the architecture degree, I studied in, in Perth, in Western Australia. It was a fantastic course. And you know, all the way along, I always had quite a practical approach to everything I ever undertook. You know, whether it was just, you know, simply treating uni a little bit more like a nine to five job to make sure you got your work done and you actually got to sleep, which was a bit unheard of for all of us, as we know, you know, to just viewing how we, how the the lecturers and how the information came across. And I think having a, an innate understanding and just, just passion for sort of construction, costing and understanding just sort of put a foundation behind my degree. And I didn't really know it at the time, but just sort of went through the motions of the standard architect and took on a job and looked for inspiring people. Uh, and then as time passed, I felt there was always a disconnect between the builder and the architect. And, you know, having had the opportunity to work on a few sort of construction admin jobs and the standard, you know, ABIC style, meeting builders, seeing how they work and seeing the responsibilities of, you know, the architect between it, I really felt that the two industries needed to speak more to one another which, you know, in partnering with my current business partner, Rodney, you know, we formed SK Group to make sure that a lot of the expectations, the communication and the understanding was aligned uh, so, you know, in some ways so that, you know, architects understood how we wanted to design and builders understood how architects would design and architects understood how builders would create. And that yeah. was a much more firm relationship, which we wanted to create. Did you already know Rodney before? starting the business together like for a long time or was it sort of you got to know each other in your careers we'd known each other as sort of friends yeah you know university yeah. you know we'd, we'd been on a few educational trips together but you know you sort of right place right time the serendipitous moments in life when we caught up for a lunch and we realized we're in the yeah. same position and hey we could do this this would be great yeah Let's just get it was, started. <laughs> and was rodney in the building industry and going oh i just wish that we could sort of break down the barriers with architects a little bit more was there this sort of shared ethos between you guys even early on yeah it was pretty similar i think i really wanted to pull them together and then having someone having you know a willingness and an openness in the high-end residential field it made 
it made sense, you know, knowing each other was one thing and then the respect of each other's professions was what really drew us together. Yeah. Was this idea of we do some projects where we're just the builder and some projects where we're designed by us and built by us, was that there from the beginning or how did you initially start off in terms of like structuring the types of projects that you did and how you delivered them? I think at first it was a bit of, you know, who's going to take us on? It yeah. could be anyone. <laughs> could be anyone. Um, yeah. So I think we really wanted just the design and construct approach. You know, I'd done a, a year with another design and construct business, very different to how we operate now, but it sort of taught taught me the bones of how I wanted things to be, but also importantly, how I didn't want them to be. And without recreating the wheel, what it meant for us to create a successful business. We were doing things like maintenance jobs, you know, gutters, roofings, cladding. We were doing property <laughs> inspections. It was it was a bit of whatever whatever we could find to sort yeah. of find our path. And we, yeah. we've we learned a great amount of patience in what we do that, you know, the, the right projects and the right clients and the right direction usually uncovers itself through patience. Yeah. Uh, and probably a couple of years in, we realized some people started coming to us with, you know, we don't want your architectural services, but we want to be able to build with you or, you know, have you price the project. And sort of that became something which we, invested in and thought, well, why can't we do both? You know, we have all the skills to build. So why can't some projects be design and construction and others be pure construction? When you were kind of going through that process of kind of exploring around and figuring out kind of what the right fit was, how did you kind of know when when it was clicking and working? Was that when people started coming to you or were you guys also kind of getting a feeling that a certain approach that we're taking or some of the things that we're doing are working better than other things? Yeah, so... At the beginning, I think because we were working in this like little hotbed of just us with our clients and it's very difficult to get the message out there, it was very much a sort of a word of mouth and, you know, networking approach. And, you know, you can only tap so many people on the shoulder and get in touch and get in front of so many people when you do that. It's super important and we still do it today. We still like to meet with, you know, colleagues, even if it is just for a copy to talk industry. But that's so important in a general base understanding. And we probably found our biggest advocates at that time were working with other interior architects and mm. and trying to get in touch with architects. So that they're your biggest advocates because they're the ones that are effectively going to recommend you for work to a degree. Mm. Uh, what we found is as we launched into the marketing world and, you know, put up our really terrible Facebook page to start and then you learn <laughs> what needs to happen and same with Instagram and work out how to make it work slowly over time with your site signage and process and just communicating with people that get in touch with you everything slowly and slowly started to grow. Yeah. So did, when you were first kind of going from word of mouth to like being a good kind of communicating firm, doing a bit of marketing, was it was it tough to sort of figure out how to how to sort of make it clear what you guys do? Because you do a few different things like you're doing, as I mentioned, you're building projects in collaboration with other architects, interior designers. You're having people come to you directly and say, could you be my builder? You're having other people come and say, could you be my architect, my builder? I think I think it was a very difficult process and I almost think still to this day, it's extremely difficult to do yeah, right. because <laughs> if, even when you want to explain who you are, what you stand for on your, on your website, as you know, as we all know, you can look at 20 different people's businesses in one industry and they all sound the same on the website. And it's about the people, the projects and the connections within it that you have to get out there. So I still think to a degree, we struggle with that message a little bit today. And it's something that we're forever working on. But I feel like every every client that comes in the door, every connection that we make, that we make with anyone, you know, with anyone in terms mm-hmm. of the professional guys, we, we just talk to them about everything. So we like the fact that we can problem solve any problem that people come in here with. 
whether it's from concept. I've got a here's, a, here's a piece of paper with something I've created. This is what we want to create. Let's go to, guys, I've got a town planning permit. I'm stuck. Let, what can we do from here? So we really try to, anyone that comes in the door, we can have a conversation with them and see if it is the right project for us and for the client. And if not, at least guide them in the, in the right way. So yeah, it is still difficult to get the true essence of all the tiers of the things that we achieve. But in a nutshell, you know, we can provide architecture, we can provide construction, and we can provide both combined together. There's a, there's a couple of like questions I want to ask about that specifically. The first is that when you're when you're being kind of very open and 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 broad, or you're taking on a range of different things, big, small, lots of different problems you kind of run two risks sometimes, right? It's that you kind of dilute your brand, right? It's harder to maintain quality or this is just something that architects are concerned with. The other thing is like, you know, taking on smaller projects, it's really hard to actually make that sustainable financially a lot of the time. And there's this, always this pressure in the industry. I need bigger projects, bigger projects. I need to take on more responsibility so I can charge more fees. Yeah. So I guess it means we make a lot of tough decisions on a, on a weekly basis because... You know, thankfully, in the last you know few years, the number of inquiries have outweighed you know the projects that we've taken on, and it does help you sort of identify what projects reflect who you are and what works. And whilst we're happy to work with clients on quite small scale projects, I don't like using dollar value too much as a specific range because commonly, you know, the sub for, for less than half a million dollars, as an example, it can be quite difficult to achieve a client's outcome sort of regardless of what it is, unless it's very small and very internal based. Mm. So as soon as structure and other elements become involved in town planning and, and access and terrible soil conditions, as a lot of areas do for these small projects, they become really difficult to, to justify. And, and often in, in talking to the client about them, they either realize that they're happy to go, you know, take the steps forward with you, even though they're going to pay more or it's the end of the road. And sort of that barometer has helped us determine where sort of the small end of the market is. Mm. Um, sometimes you just get clients in the door that are so lovely and just have, they don't have the experience or the visual capacity to, to you know, mm. conceptualize their project. They just need you to help them get over the line. And an example is, you know, just a really small kitchen and living room renovation. But if they're lovely enough and they're willing to work with you and to an extent pay for your service, then we're happy to take on those projects. How do you kind of think about making the fees work in those sorts of situations? Because I have a I have clients that really deal with, you know, there isn't a, a lot of science in the industry around how do you set fees. It's very much like I just sort of pulled a number out of whatever or a range or whatever it is. It's it's not really grounded in very much at all. So what goes okay. into your process for kind of calculating how you might charge a smaller job or even a even a big job, but maybe, maybe the job. differences between the two, I suppose. Yeah. So uh, look, yeah, I didn't touch on the bigger jobs before, but I think in a way I, I look at them in a very similar approach. And whilst we have, you know, fee schedules and the exponential chart to work out where your fee sits, I still think there's a range of architects in our community that don't exactly say where it should be 10%, 6%, 8%, 4%. And, and I like the approach of actually making a fixed fee based on time and actually being a lot firmer with optionality in your fee, you know, whether it be furniture, whether it be, you know, high level automation or security or other aspects which are not so generally intertwined with our, the architectural design that we might provide our client mm. and work out how long it's going to take you know and that that really helps determine my fee what stages are involved are we going to are we going to need a lot of time in between to evaluate what what does a feasibility stage look like up front and is that going to help us sort of def define the brief so often i feel like you have to set your set the brief, set the, the tone of the project first, 
to be able to establish where your fee sits. But as I said, I don't, I don't often subscribe to a percentage fee on the project because I don't feel, I feel someone loses out, whether the client loses out or whether the architect loses out. Mm. However, one of the ways in which, you know, we've felt over time, we, we can mitigate this when the budget changes. And that's a perfect example in every single project we've ever worked on. Mm. Talk with the client upfront about what they expect to spend. We have a discussion with them about where we feel the project might sit based on our experience typology, site, etc., and usually finished work. And often during the process, if people approach us for a design and construct job, we will provide pricing a little bit later on in the piece. And that's usually what I call the jaw drop moment where people go, oh, my building's actually going to cost this much, but they still have time to reevaluate some things that may be important to them or that they might want to pare back a little bit before we proceed to final documentation. And if there's a real discrepancy between where we started and where we are at sort of for that preliminary pricing, you know, we, we address that by, you know, you know, if the price is 10% more than, as an example, where we started, you know, we have the ability to renegotiate fees to a point. Okay. I have never done that in the time that I've practiced, but we've worked on how we facilitate that within our, our fee structure, because I think this gives the architect a blanket of security in case you do end up with a project which is twice what you bargained for at the beginning. And you found that that system has generally, through practice, has worked out quite well. And communicating it works. You're able to communicate that easily to clients as well. And they seem to be pretty, pretty like, you know, okay taking on that sort of arrangement at the beginning. Generally, they do. But I think whenever you mention anything to do with dollars, everyone always takes one step back out of the, out of the <laughs> huddle and the conversation. I think it's a very natural. And, and I think whether it be, you know, in our industry or others, I think not everyone just likes to talk, have the conversation about money. And I, it's the second question I usually ask in a project, but it's not to sort of assess whether a project is suitable for us from a budgetary perspective. It's so that, you know, we're not all spending hours and hours of meetings, corralling, discussing, identifying, you know, what's what's good about these projects with these great clients, or only then to feel, oh, you know, find out that their budget is a fraction of, what you know it's actually going to cost to build. So is that one of the main sort of initial filters that you think about when you're meeting with a new client uh, is as far as their budget goes, is it like the realisticness of their brief is kind of a, ma- yeah. is a major concern? Is that is that sort of one of the chief, chief things that you kind of check for with when you're discussing it with any new client? Correct. There, and there are many different ways in which to approach it. But, you know, generally speaking, the brief and, you know, how, how much larger or how many bedrooms, bathrooms, basement, et cetera, the the basic brief concept and their expectation, probably more than the budget of what they hope to spend. You need to identify and align those two things really quickly in order to then direct the project in the right way. Because you can still have a really successful project. It just might be two thirds of the size of what the client actually expected it to be from before they contacted you. So you're developing basically a, a fixed fee and you're thinking about your time taken. I feel like I know a lot of architects that would really struggle to kind of concoct that idea of how long will this take me? And there's such a big, there can be such a big range in there, right? But are you pretty, I'll use the word meticulous because you appears throughout your kind of your bio and everything, but pretty meticulous about calculating like we really do think, you know, this will take this time. So you've got a really good kind of knowledge base around what it takes your office to produce work, right? How have you established that over time? Just... So, so, you know, obviously things that you cannot always control your team, but as you grow and build up, you know, a network of your staff and who's capable in what areas, you know, some people have stronger 
are stronger at design, some are stronger at you know town planning, documentation, and some are really good at understanding the site effects of you know when things get built, how things need to be changed. So building up that team over the last eight years has been you know one source of that, a bit of a, a bookend if you like. Yeah. The the other factor is really identifying the deliverables of what we want to provide for our clients, and I think that took me quite a while, many years to establish, and you know. Over the last two to three years, I've truly honed on making sure that whilst the, I don't want to call it a template, but whilst, you know, our clients, generally speaking, will get a very similar package for all the projects. And what we, you know, what we deliver at each phase is quite similar. There'll always be different types of drawings and different types of sections, details, 3Ds to to show what they're going to get. But we stick to a pretty standard template because at the end of the day, it comes back to it's still a business and you can't overrun phases just however you feel to get the best the best effect we have a level of confidence that we can deliver the client a great product and if we know that there's a much higher budget or we know that there's a high level of complexity in the project we just account for that and i think you know architects problem solvers they are highly creative people you know they can be they can also be highly technical and skilled people and i think there's a growth now in you know, the business side and operating it. And I think when you take all those things together and we can guide clients through a process, we can talk about a plan, how it's going to look on site. We have that visual, we can visualize it very clearly. We need to convey that to clients on a, in a much more bite-sized arrangement. And I feel that when we work through our presentations and our design process in the office, we do it in bite-sized pieces. And I think it helps everyone in the project team really capture what's important at each level and then, mm. proceed, and then proceed. There, are, If there's an opportunity that we see that needs a higher level of creativity in terms of creating something a little bit more special or needs to respond to the site or the brief in a certain way, we'll make sure that we account for that. But in terms of what we provide and what we what we give to the clients, it's going. it might be quite similar. That's interesting. That I, that's like something I never really hear in the industry. It's like when we identify that there's a, like almost a need for that extra creativity right is it the recognition that some situations some projects demand a certain amount from your team and some are are much higher but not every project is about absolutely pushing it as far as you can to the max right do you think that sometimes or i guess quite often for your clients like in this battle between kind of creativity and certainty do do a lot of your clients go give me the certainty please (laughs) like yeah Yeah, absolutely. A lot of our clients actually, because they know we have the construction knowledge, they really want us to be a bit more upfront and guide them. And one of the common things is when you feel like I'm going overboard, tap me on the shoulder and let me know, you know, and we make a, we make a pact of doing that. And we know that's not what a lot of other architects do, but it's not our money at the end of the day. It's the client's money. So the client, when they think they're going overboard, like they might, they may be getting a bit too excited, wanting to put too many things in the project. Is that what you're kind of referring to, or you, or you guys going overboard? Well, it's a bit of both, but we often find because we've already had the budget conversation early on in the piece, our clients are sort of already geared to, you know, let us know, or for us to let them know when they feel that that they're going overboard. You're able to offer unconflicted or unbiased advice to the client in that situation because you're not being paid a percentage. You're not making more money if they want to add more, do more, do more. You're able to sort of stop them and say, hey, look, you know, we're getting maybe a little bit carried away and that's ultimately not against your best interests, right? I mean, or whatever. If you were on the percentage, you would would be kind of conflicted there, right? Yeah. 
it's true. And I've been told many a time that, you know, the process you do conflicts the design process and you should let it run more and see where you go. But we've been in our early stages of a business, we know what happens when you get to tender and you've got to redocument the project. It's mm-hmm. the, you know, it's the unspoken phase that no one speaks about. So we would much rather have those conversations earlier on and actually create a really good outcome. That's not going to cost the client, you know, architectural fee, engineering fees, thermal assessment fees and all the other things involved just for the sake of maintaining creativity. And I think that just comes into trusting what we do and we know that we can create a really good outcome. There are also different parts of a project, you know, some, you know, many suburban blocks in Melbourne, you're governed or we're all governed by the same rules. And, you know, I'm a firm believer in not overspending on areas where no one is going to appreciate or understand the building, Mm. you know, the sides of houses down long narrow blocks. You know, we try not to push the budget there. But then internally, you know, kitchens and living spaces might be the most single important thing to these people. And yeah. that's where we redirect some of that. I don't want to call it creativity, just a bit more oomph, you know, yeah. because yeah, that, that's important yeah. to them. That's where they want to live. They, they have a passion for wine. They want to display their alcohol cabinet or particular artwork. You know, we will guide the project to those areas. And I imagine, like, I mean, I think a theme of this, maybe it'll even be the title of the episode, but something to do with repetition, because I feel like repetition and practice is like a big theme throughout the way you operate and your marketing. But this idea that, like, if we try to develop almost uh, a consistent framework for the deliverables, right, do you find that through practice and through continuing development and getting more opportunities at bat doing the same things over and over again or in similar ways that your team actually ends up becoming like essentially a lot more productive and potentially they get a lot more design out of every out of their time than they otherwise would if every new time they were doing something it was like the first time they were doing it or the situations were it, the approach was taken so differently each time that you're just kind of figuring it out but but have you sort of seen like the benefits of this kind of trying to develop a system and, and continuing to re- sort of repeat that with your team. De- definitely. And I think it's parts of the process, not the whole thing. So I think yeah. having a base framework and understanding the types of drawings and sort of the types of timeframes involved job to job, having that as a founding has really given, we feel our team a sense of calmness in approaching multiple jobs. So, you know, if you get a project that's at concept design, and you're, or you receive or jump on a project at design development phase, you know what's required of you. And, and I think, you know, what the client, what we want to produce for the clients just helps everyone have a, a base foundation. And it's probably been the one thing in sort of all our general reviews with staff of the year, exit interviews, people always ask about it. You know, have you got a framework? Have you got, a, have you got some checklists? Have you got, have you got bits and pieces that are going to assist us to guide us, to help us, you know, keep on track and, mm indirectly we've sort of landed at that point here at snk yeah so you're a big systems and processes guy hey does that funnel down to you mean you've got staff asking about checklists my god so so like really down to that level you're quite helpful in terms of generating sort of things to make their lives easier essentially right yeah does that, does that a, take the form yeah. of sort of documents or operating procedures or what kind of what kind of stuff do you you know like to use to help sort of instill this process-driven culture? Well, I'll take one side step first before I, yeah. I get to the to the what. But I think being in a, having construction as an important arm in the business and there's a lot of red tape, regulation, compliance, a lot of issues involved around it. It's probably bounded the sort of certainty that we need to create in the office around 
how systems work. And it isn't just inter-team and two clients, it's really between the construction and the architecture teams. And it comes down to that, you know, the architect's instruction, the RFI, you know, is there a simpler way to do it? Because we don't really do A-bit contracts. You can't do a contract within within your own business between the <laughs> architect and the builder. So we usually run different contracts with our clients, but the we still operate between a contract admin and a, and a construction team manner. So to have all those processes and steps is super important. And, you know, everyone's got their standard folder template in their drive. That That's something, that's something which we, we rely on, but... I would say that from an architectural perspective, because I think that's the re- that's the relevant part to this. It's you know we have a few golden architectural sets that are projects which we, you know, they're not the, the world's best projects, but in terms of a documentation package and a rigor around, you know, regulatory compliance, bits of information that might be a little bit more difficult to ascertain, you know, ground levels, terrain, etc. They're all there, and they're sort of things that we still reference back to six-year-old jobs today to sort of say, "Hey, that was the real. That was a really good way to achieve this outcome or this approach to a period home or to a dual occupancy. Let's use that, and let's use that as an educational tool to teach, you know, the new person." Yeah, right, Matt. Is the learning curve to becoming an architect at uh, SNK quite steep? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think. I think you mentioned reps before and you know the first thing we do is throw people in the deep end but it's really not <laughs> it's really it's really not a in a way to make them fail because we 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 I'm not going to put anyone or I'm not going to put anyone in, in a position where they can't achieve what they want to achieve yeah. but they have to feel their way and find what works for them and it's a little bit about what makes them tick and just seeing what they can absorb which helps us redirect you know what they're good at and how they can support the business but you know I feel everyone that comes here, I believe, as as a director of a business and as an architect, we work for our staff and we need to give them everything that they need to make their jobs as easy as possible and support them, but without micromanaging and without bringing in, you know, young grads and just having them draft and do markups for four or five years. You know, they are, whilst I do think there is a bit of a, a, a gap in when you finish your studies and when you want to get a job, unless you've been working prior, yeah. you need to put them in the deep end because you know everyone is different and some people are really good at taking on the complexities of of what we do, and you just need to nurture and grow with them. Do you think that this this idea of becoming the sort of the architect and the builder and the and the partnership there is that something that you see becoming more common in the industry in the future? Do you feel like the, there's some ben- there's some big benefits there for small architecture practices to maybe consider exploring that. I think there'll always be players in the field. It's very difficult just to say oh, I'm going to add that to my suite of services. Yeah. You know, with Rodney and I, it was something where you know the two people at the right time that wanted to establish a fully integrated business, and we sort of had to work out the mold in which it worked. And it took five six years to go. Okay, that really that works now. We know how to approach the situation. Can it be done a hundred percent? You know, do people still ask us today, oh, can you exactly tell me how much my building is going to cost before it starts? You know, the answer is no. But we can say now today, we can say we've completed these jobs in the past and they're very similar to yours. And this is how much, you know, within reason that they cost. So we can have a conversation around that and then it gives them a bit of a baseline. So I think it helps. But in terms of making a jump, I think I think it's a question probably wider for the architecture society where it may not be construction, but you might be able to branch out with other consultants. So having 
a town planning partnership the way SJB do as part of their practice or splitting your interior and your architecture. You know, those sorts of services are very complementary. And I feel if there are architects out there that have an appreciation for business and want to add another dimension to what they do, looking for those associated services is only a way to refer work, build your network and potentially provide a value add within a service that you already offer. Mm. At the end of the day, there are a lot of architects out there and it's, and everyone's sort of fighting for the attention of others. But how you provide for your clients is another approach to gaining, you know, not market share, but, you know, more work. Yeah. And I think that's something a lot of people could consider if they have the right network of friends and colleagues around them. Yeah. It makes it a lot easier to differentiate your practice, right? I agree. And I, yeah. I mean, clients must love that they can work with you guys and then they've got the builder in the same, you know. <laughs> yeah. Some, some do. Some do. And I think the reason why we feel quite you know, vindicated in that decision is, you know, whilst we do tender on a lot of other projects as a construction firm, most of our work now more than half is definitely negotiated because people see that if they, they like who you are and they like the work that you do, the only discussion points at the end of the day are, you know, what is your margin and, and how long is the project going to take? And if you can have an open conversation around finances and money, which we will always do with our clients, we feel that, you know, the plumber's a plumber and it's got to be a plumber that we can work with, you know, from yeah. a construction perspective. That's interesting. So you've worked with some really great architects, interior designers. I'm just going to quickly refer to my list that I've got here of stuff I've pulled <laughs> off your website. But, you know, some some really... Oh, God, I can't, can't find my list. Okay, but from memory, Aesthetic, Golden, Tate, Flax Studio, just some for, for listeners that are outside of Melbourne, but some really great, great, like well-loved, you know, Melbourne, Australian interior design practices and architecture practices. Where did that kind of begin for, for S&K, these sort of working with these really high caliber designers what are the components of how you've been able to kind of get your practice embedded in this kind of high-end interior design world yeah great great question and i think it stemmed down to looking at an opportunity with interior architects who had started to get this mold of oh i, I want to do a whole house but they're actually going to an interior architect because they mm. were the first person that they saw they were the the nice pictures, they had the social content. I actually feel that interior designers had a lot better marketing content yeah. on Instagram yeah, and Facebook than architects did. Yeah. First of all, a lot of it is super, you know, it looks super sexy, yep. the styling shots, the all the interior, the kitchens, the bathrooms. And with architects, sometimes you weren't even involved in the interiors and it was just your building. So there was often a bigger <laughs> lag in terms of to get to that point to market yeah. your project. I think interior architects are partially just better at it than a lot of architects. I, I agree, stuff. absolutely. Yeah, definitely. But what we felt is that those questions were coming forward to the interior architects and we weren't necessarily, you know, wedded to having to always do the interiors. We were happy just to do the architecture. So mm. a lot of the projects in early days with Studio Tate, with Golden, et cetera, and, you know, even working now with Christopher Elliott, yeah. we, we just provide an architectural service and a scope and they actually become, as I was talking about the, the being an advocate, they actually become advocates because they can rely on you and they can come and talk to us about architectural advice if they have a project which might need a few windows changed and it's in a heritage planning zone. Well, you know, we can assist them with that and assist their clients. And if they want to discuss buildability, costing, and they're moving on to construction, we can also provide that for them. Yeah. So from our perspective, having both architecture and construction, the interior design market is a is just a massive pool of people and talented individuals and, and groups that 
you know, need that we feel could benefit from the assistance of, you know, similar companies like us. Yeah, because I was always imagining it being more the kind of the building arm of SNK being the one that sort of interacts with the interior designers. But the way you've just explained it makes me think it's just as much the architecture arm, right? Which makes it even more relevant for this podcast, because I wonder if that's something that other architects could potentially explore. Like, you know, maybe you've got it, you've got it covered in Melbourne, but like <laughs> maybe like London, maybe New York, maybe there's some architects there that could be thinking, hang on, I'm really not doing the interiors. Maybe it would be great to start exploring partnerships with with interior designers that are absolutely killing it on Instagram. I I think it comes down to a confidence that I know I'm not always only going to be working on projects that are just architectural Mm. and supporting and you have to trust the process and knowing that we we do get projects in that we do the entire work top to bottom. But I think we just love working with great people and I'm a really firm believer of, you know, people who are experts in their field, they're the people that you want to surround yourself with and you have the ability to work on much Better is the wrong word, but, you know, awesome. Yeah. Better, uh, be, mm. uh, better looking, maybe sometimes bigger budget, more interesting projects if you surround yourself with a wider branch of people because not everyone is going to find you and give you the golden job. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And a lot, of, a lot of jobs that we undertake, they're the ones that you need to pay the bills. They're the ones you need to just have content and grow, grow your, you know, your business. That's what's really important. I do want to mention, I think one of the things, because this is a marketing podcast as well. Please, yeah. But, we'll, we'll, um, so my guests forced me to talk about marketing. <laughs> but yeah, go If we must, Paul, go on, go on. I, I think the interior designers are the ones that sort of taught me that we need to brand ourselves a bit better and show ourselves mm. and our processes in a greater light. And you mentioned reps earlier, but, you know, it is all about doing reps, you know, Gary V, who you know I do like to Big listen fan. to from time yep. to time, yep. does talk about you don't get fit talking about doing push-ups. So the only way to get better at what you do is to continuously practice and put out content without really the the care of who clicks on it to like it. Yep. That's probably the – if you do that, then it's, you're really going to struggle. You just need to keep putting content out there. And being active in what you put out there is important because people will often leave comments and leave likes sometimes and – and approach and I think responding to those people whether it's on house when people ask you a question about what color laminate did you use on that robe or just giving you a compliment on your work or giving you a negative comment responding is super important in maintaining community and showing that you know that you care and that you're part of this thing that's larger than just your business yeah it's it's odd because like just on that engagement point we'll come back to the interior designers and the reps and stuff and social media but there, there are some architects who, who really do feel like the thing that they need to do to get to that next level is like stop responding to those questions on house and like stop responding to people on Instagram. You never, ever, ever know where your next inquiry, which could be turned into a, a project, is going to come from. And sometimes the best projects we've ever worked on have come from a client that's approached us, you know, via email, called and followed up. I found out that their budget wasn't right or wasn't right for the type of project they wanted yep. to do and was up front. And they said, thank you very much. You know, it's been really helpful, but you know, this just isn't for us to only find out that your next job and inquiry, which is a, a fantastic, you know, large budget home has come from that person telling their friends about the experience that they yeah. had with you. And you just yep. never know when those things will happen. And you have to maintain that same level of professionalism to everyone. That's really interesting. The thing that seems a little bit counterintuitive about your situation is that some architects are like, I will be nice to everybody and be professional and respond when I feel that I don't have enough work and I've got no leads, the phone's not ringing. 
But then as soon as that's busy, oh, I don't need to do that stuff anymore. Whereas you're in the situation you mentioned earlier, you know, where in the fortunate point right now where there's more demand than there is supply, we're definitely having to choose and carefully manage which projects we take on. Yet you still enact these sort of positive good practices you're not you don't you don't just go okay time to turn the tap off like you know no more marketing needed at this point in a young business they're the things that i think you get drawn to because you realize you don't want to take on more than you know you don't bite off more than you can chew but what you what we learned is it can actually be detrimental because whether it's in construction whether it's in design if you stop doing those things in the times when you're busy and when it you're very difficult to pull them back when you start getting quiet or when you have a quiet month or two month period when projects are finishing. So you really have to put your foot on the accelerator. And I actually think when you're doing, when you're the busiest is the time that you need to be pushing it harder. And pushing it harder doesn't mean anything more than just adding a bit more to what you do. And yeah. I think people get, and think that you have to do everything yourself, whether it's in business, whether it's in marketing. You know, we've, we've got a videographer, which we effectively have on a form of retainer. And we just have an, have an agreement to provide some, video content around our projects just to show process and craft because if we wait for all the finished projects to occur we're going to be waiting six months 12 months 18 months to get to that we want to engage with people about you know we're not just a finished product but this is who we are in the middle and this is how we do it and here's here's some cool semi-artistic things that we can show you whether it's in instagram stories and the video content and linkedin are sort of the the mechanisms for that that we feel the most engaging what was that point where you guys realized like branding is a really, really important component here? Yeah, I think we realized when when we were quiet. So I think it came out of the sort of the negative part of not doing, you know, starting to just think about this stuff when we had a quiet few months on yeah. all fronts. It wasn't related to an economic event. It was just it was just timing. And we ended up going, okay, let's start to push and build. But what we did is we did everything slowly. So we got our Instagram working well. And we just made sure our Facebook page worked. And even the simple things about just phone numbers and addresses and open hours, like making yeah. your page look professional, starting slowly. You know, Instagram was one and then building into stories. And we just get everyone in the office. We've got a bit of a photo pool to share, you know, where you go, what you do, take, you know, take pictures of site meetings, trade meetings, and just sort of build content around what's around, you know, what you have in front of you. Yeah. We're not creating anything new. It's just documenting. And that, that's really important. And, you know, bit by bit, then we went into LinkedIn and I found, you know, from an organic perspective, just to connect with business professionals. And I guess from a B2B perspective, you know, you can't always be B2C. B2B can actually be, is a lot easier than B2C, you know, business to client. And I think I've grown to meet a lot of people and a lot of interesting people who are highly skilled through the LinkedIn platform, just by communicating your ideas, your work, you know, and sharing interesting pieces of information. That was, I I mean you know, disclosure, we kind of work together during this process of you initially figuring out LinkedIn and a few other things. And you'll probably be happy to admit that you're a bit of a perfectionist, Paul, and, and, and pretty, pretty <laughs> like attention to detail is kind of your, you know, your forte, right? right. But you have, you, you have a strong belief in this idea of like learning through doing it and experimentation. But that was definitely a challenge that you had to confront, right? In terms of, I'm going to go out there and do stuff that I don't haven't done before. I don't really know how to do like, but you got over it. So you got through it eventually, right? I did. And yeah, I have to thank you for, for assisting no, me no, with that. No, no, all you. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, yeah, well, I did it, but I, I needed to be pushed off the edge just a little bit. <laughs> I, what I've realized about myself, and I think, you know, being self-aware is super important. I understood that I need to feel comfortable with something to do it. 
and then I'm happy to proceed with it. And it's often about playing around with the platform and understanding what happens when you do this. And then when you understand those, those ideas and the, the sort of the process into creating this content and it isn't so scary, then you feel confident and then you do more and more and more and more. So it, it all, as I said, it all comes back to just practice. And I think just being honest and probably the biggest hurdle is it's always, people always care about what other people think, but I think you need to provide this content if you're putting it out there, you believe in it or you need to believe in it. It needs to be very truthful. It needs to come from the heart, if you like, or from a, a very guided place that, that you that you feel you can communicate with your peers. If you're just pushing someone else's agenda or saying something you don't really believe in, no one's going to believe you anyway. And I think coming back to those roots made it super easy just to share really cool things with people. Well, I think they're cool sometimes. Yeah. And it's also been the things you think are really cool, no one else you know, likes or cares about and the things that you think, oh, that's not really great, but, you know, we'll give it a go. They're the things that people love the most. <laughs> so reflecting a little bit on some of, because like there's the visual stuff, the process stuff. I mean, that's pretty straightforward in terms of you guys just put out a lot of stuff and kind of go some of it, some of it will catch, some of it won't, that's fine. You know, whatever, we're just kind of documenting as you mentioned. But with the LinkedIn stuff where you're actually like having to do some writing, that's kind of taking it to a kind of the next level really and expressing your point of view and, and your opinions and beliefs. Reflecting on those experiments that you've run doing that on LinkedIn, is there anything that's kind of clicked for you in terms of types of content or certain, you know, certain types of messages that you feel resonate better than others in, in the sort of stuff that you've been sharing on LinkedIn and elsewhere? At the beginning, I would have said it was all, you know, very much about sort of the congratulatory, you know, messages and the posts about new project and new work and new site. And there's definitely been a boom in that sort of approach. So initially you thought that was your best content. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's because that was easy. That was, it was, you know, it was there in front of you. You just had to grab it and, you know, it was out. And that for us, I call that process in a way. So signing a new job is part of our business process and winning more work for the office, but putting a photo up, that's just capturing what's around us. It was super easy. You know, reflect COVID was a really easy step, I think, as a transition because it sort of made you think a little bit more about how it affected your team. I think, you know, I think you do a post on working from home, even though that wasn't a process related thing. It was, oh, great. We're now in this situation. I'm in this environment. And I didn't think people would really care, but just sharing your thoughts as someone, as a professional, let alone an architect in this environment, it quite, it captured people, you know talking, you know, maybe a post about Rodney and I and spending a bit of time together on site discussing something, you know, these sorts of things, they, they seem to now be the bits and pieces. And when you can write about them, that create a bit more of a, uh, create more of the like, if, you know, the, yeah. the like button or the celebrate button. Now the process stuff, I think, just gets intertwined within. So I think to differentiate yourself on LinkedIn, you definitely need to share your ideas and your thought more than just, you know, new project update, et cetera. I think that that's the key in engagement. Yeah. So, so when you're talking about the project update, you're like, it's right there for you. There's like an obvious action reaction, right? Or a trigger, some, see something, that's a milestone, something very identifiable has happened there. But yeah. in your day-to-day work, you're not necessarily taking the time, particularly because you're very busy. You know, you're not sort of laying back in the beanbag chair in the meeting room, having a, you know, having a thinking session about, <laughs> about like, you know, what's going on in the practice, that sort of thing. How do you kind of think about when you're going to post some of your thoughts, like what are, what are some like triggers or what sort of things kind of, when does that idea pop up in your mind? Are there any sort of, you know, things you've noticed about how that happens for you? Well, for someone that professes to be 
super organized. I believe planning your social media content, the sort of the more, the stuff that I do and say LinkedIn as an example, Instagram yeah. is one thing I think because yeah, yeah. we, we have a, a yeah. strategy for that. But in terms of LinkedIn, not having a plan is the best plan. Yeah. And I think you become your most honest when that happens. I think, and I think, you know, you need to look for them. You need to be yourself. And I think when you are yourself, that's when you can just talk about things that are important to you. Uh, you know, an example without going into too many was, you know, there was an acoustic test that was done on one of our apartment projects. And for anyone that works on larger existing apartment buildings, especially in Melbourne, you need to, you know, get a sample of your flooring tested and then get it acoustically rated and ticked off by the body corporate before you can install it. But no one knows what these machines look like. So just, you know, going to a meeting and seeing that this thing is not what even I expected and I've been a professional for 10 years as an architect, going, oh, that's amazing. Short video, makes a loud noise, and then you have some content to go, well, that's really interesting and people are going to people are gonna like this. People are going to have no idea what it is and then they're <laughs> going to read about it. You know, so I think I, I feel for that content, it is really just as you go and it's all around you. And I think it's just how you can look at it, translate it, and then put it into words, video, image, etc. So that would be an example of like a kind of more education or curiosity. There's many aspects to why that post would work, but are, there, are, are many of the posts that you're doing kind of, I guess, going, let me show you something cool. Let me teach you about something. Is that sort of generally the, the thread that, that ties them together or it's just really a, really a mix, right? You're just, you're just kind of going for it, working with whatever you've got. I think, I, I think I'm just, I like to look at it as a lens of what I'm doing and what's happening around me. And, you know, sometimes there are weeks when it's more focused around other like similar topics and other times, you know, it might be more creating something new or a thought or sharing something that I heard and I've been thinking about for a few weeks and now I'm ready to share that idea with people. Yeah. And I've always got this backlog of things that I want to discuss. Sometimes they're like, you know, potentially in my mind could be super inflammatory, you know, <laughs> you know, sometimes there are a lot of things that people in our profession, you know, do that are super good. And I'd, I'd like to talk about them more, but they're not always the first thing you go to. And sometimes there are, there are things that, that aren't great and things you hear in the industry about how fees work, or you hear that another architect had this amazing, amazingly huge fee. And how does that work? And you question it and you want to, and you want to bring it back. So, you know, I think everything is is literally in the air around you and it's at every project you visit it's with every client that you meet and that's really the source of inspiration for just sharing who i am as as a professional and who we are as a business and i also think not giving advice but i think just you know making sure you tag other people that work with you on a project in any form is so important and just acknowledging their their presence and in that job and i yep. i I don't think that's done enough. Yeah, right. So just like everybody, sort of everybody involved, give them a tag. Yeah, the project team, yeah. Yeah. Also, really good idea on LinkedIn as far as getting more reach for your posts. <laughs> so it's really uh, yes, it has, it has a secondary really effect. Secondary yeah. effect. You get some engagement. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, really interested in like your kind of approach to developing mutually beneficial relationships with allied disciplines. I have some clients that want to start doing more of that, you know, catching up for a, a coffee with somebody or, you know, really reaching out to a stranger in the industry. But they find that process of making that initial outreach to be awkward or difficult. Could you maybe give some sort of insight into your into your approach for kind of meeting new people in the industry and, you know, making that first point of contact especially 
So I always think it's it's good to know who you want to meet and why you want to meet them and having sort of a, a good understanding and whether that's within your own profession or, you know, other professions, like, you, you know, you just need to meet other consultants or you just want to meet other architects. You need to establish who you want to meet and why you want to meet them first. So we, we find here, you know, meeting with other other architects sort of a dual or interior architects sort of as a dual link within our business because obviously we have the ability to provide them with an architectural service and we have the ability to provide them with a you know from a build perspective but in terms of doing that I think good advice is to find sort of that intermediary that can give you a warm referral and or an introduction Mm. and by doing that at least you have a semi like there's a little foot in the door to be able to have a conversation and if they're interested in meeting with you then it's it happens it's easy it's a no-brainer uh, I think that's really important. Cold calling is really difficult, but I think you need to you need to be able to find a way to connect with that person. But using a third, using a warm referral that you both know is the is the way in. And yeah. you know, sometimes the best sources of these people are actually the tr- the the trade and supplier reps that we work with because. You know, if you're working with a lighting company, which, you know, we work with a few, but, you know, as an example from Est Lighting, I I have a contact there and they, you know, they know a lot of architects. And if I ever really would like to meet someone or get put in touch with, you know, James is someone who I'll go and have a conversation with, you know, and usually when you do a lot of work with people, they're willing to sort of make an introduction. So I think, as I said, it all comes back to these people are all around you. You Mm. use these people on an everyday basis for everything that you do. that's, that, that's the network that you need to jump in. And how often are you doing that sort of thing? Like even today, I mean, it's probably, I guess it, I, I was going to say maybe it's less crucial than it once was, but I, I, I'm saying that probably not, right? It's probably as crucial as ever, right? Mm. To continue Correct. to meet continue to meet people. You never really feel like you have gone, okay, I know enough people now. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. I can rest on my laurels. I've met everybody I need to meet. How regularly in your in your kind of typical month or, you know, typical quarter are you kind of going out and meeting somebody new being realistic i'd like to say at least once a fortnight but i'm constantly trying to find the right people and it is about finding the right people so it's not just about anyone but people don't like to be sold so obviously when you meet you want to meet them for the right reasons you know we want to meet with other architects and other builders and other interior designers to to understand what they do look at their work, see if it's something that we could be aligned on and just have a really good conversation. Often you find that half the conversation is about the industry and telling old war stories and yeah. and things that are quite fun. And by breaking down those barriers, that you know you could easily get considered for future projects. And it's no different when you're looking for clients in an architectural perspective, you know, at, when you meet them out and about. And in terms of like when you actually, when you articulate to somebody that reason for wanting to meet with them. Do you address that elephant in the room of going that, you know, there might be some benefit of us, like, you know, we could possibly be a good fit for each other? Or do you kind of beat around the bush and kind of go, you know, I just want to learn more about your business or what's, what's, give me the, give me the tactics, Paul, so that I can write my own template and start, you know, selling it to architects or something. (laughs) (laughs) Easy, done. Yeah, done. So I definitely think you need you need but you need to feel engaged with them first. So you need to like what they do before you get them of in course. the room. But then when when you do, yes, you need to you need to just have a good conversation, learn about their business structure, you know, what sort of work they do, who they work with, what other builders they work with, do you work with interior designers and find sort of commonalities between between you in a general conversation form. And after that, if you feel there are synergies that could could work, then you can always, you know, talk about, you know, oh, we did a similar project or you can refer back to yourself 
first and you still feel the conversation is going, then you can always, you know, express that, you know, look, right. hey, it could be really wonderful to to work together on a project one day. R- Rodney and I know here at SNK that those conversations can take six months to two years to fester. Yeah. And the reason why people want the immediate outcome is we're thinking about these things long term. We're thinking about people yeah. we want to work with long term. And you, I think patience is something you really have to have with networking mm-hmm. and not get bummed out that if you have a meeting and then next week you haven't got an email saying, We'd oh, like I've got to a new project you for or there's a, a tender yeah. for you. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it doesn't work like that. And, it, yeah. and pe- people aren't looking for you when they're ready to go. They, you need to just be in their mind. And I think that all stems back to that branding, you know? Yeah. So if you meet someone at a, in the same forum that I've just discussed, and then you're actively pursuing social media and marketing strategies and they see you on those strategies in two years when they're ready to do something, you're the name that's going to be in their head. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I think that patience is incredibly important. So in that, in the initial outreach, you're saying, Hey, I really like your work. I would, I would love to catch up with you and discuss, you know, to have a chat about what you guys are doing. Is it as simple as that or? Yeah, could be that. I mean, for us, it's easy. We always have things that we're building or designing, but you know, it could be, Hey, I'd love to show you around one of our sites to show you what we can do. Yeah. I guess it also comes back to why that warm referral is super critical. Cause if they already know that there's someone in between that likes you and appreciates you, yep. that meeting and the process forward is a lot easier. Yeah. There we go. I got my copy for the template. So I'm happy to, <laughs> I'm happy to move on now. Let's talk about Terran because Terran is like the, the, the big project. Do you want to just briefly do the, like, I guess your elevator pitch and kind of explain yeah. uh, how do you sort of summarize what Terran is? Yeah. So look, Terran was a brainchild of Rodney and I like about four years ago, quite a long time ago. We just, we always had clients that came to us who, you know, wanted a project for a specific cost. And realistically, we sort of found it to be that sort of 700 to a million or a bit over a million dollars in range. Mm. Um, they wanted it finished yesterday. So, you know, <laughs> oh, next week, let's start, you know, without an, any any understanding of the sort of site that they have and where they're located and how, you know, it's affected. And they also wanted to know exactly what it would cost before they started. All things that any architect will tell you, I have no idea how to do that. Or it's really difficult to, to do that because we need to go through a brief, we need to go through process and so on and so forth. So we effectively created uh, Terran, which creates accessible architecture to help people have a quick solution, but beautifully crafted. And effectively, we have, we have a range of homes on our website. It is a separate business and you know it suits a different range of, of families and people, bedrooms quantities and bathroom quantities and so on. And they all the, the buildings effectively look like cousins of one another. They're all from the same family, but yeah. they're all designed to suit dif- you know on different blocks. And we incorporate, you know, engineering and thermal assessment as part of the package and and effectively within a month, if you don't require town planning for your site, which a lot of these are suited for, you know, clients are able to walk away with, you know, a package of homes ready, which they can control for tender. Yeah. Take it to any builder that they choose and build it on their land. Yeah. So that's the point. That that's you. What they do afterwards is like entirely up to them, right? So they've got they've got yeah. the the documentation, everything, and but 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 and you guys provide that kind of certainty around the pricing, and then if they do decide to work with you and get it built with with you guys, then you sort of commit to that pricing, right? So you stand by that, and that's correct. Yeah. yeah. So what we did is we have SNK Group, our building arm, put a price on these yeah. uh, because if clients understand how much it could cost for them to build, then there's a level 
of confidence for them that if they like the design, they know what it costs, they know how long it's going to take. It's a much easier, you know, position for them to, to, to take and to work out if this is what they would like to do. And, you know, SNK Group can build them, but it's not actually the aim of Terran. Terran's really yeah. just to provide another la- layer of architecture to people that we often find are caught between volume builders you know, of, 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 of all levels. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what it is, but somewhere where you're tired with the, with the, the architect or the, or the designer and the construction is all in one yep. versus a really custom bespoke architectural product where often you won't exactly know what it's going to cost until yep. the end and the timing is also a lot longer. So it yep. really fits a mold of people in the middle. It's a very big group of people in the middle too, isn't it? <laughs> like- it seems to be a tight budget with a large yep. amount of people in, in that pocket. Yes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There have been ex- sort of projects in the past where architects have tried to design the plans and then try to advertise those plans that offer them maybe limited edition or, or more widely available. But, you know, you kind of, I remember mentioning to me in the past that the price is a massive barrier, right? That's, Correct. That's something that makes it very hard for most architects to just kind of go, here's a house that, you know, I did for a client. It got three quarters of the way through. Then that client, you know, disappeared, but I'm now selling the plans. It doesn't really work that way, does it? I think it would be very tough to sell that. And I think just knowing that a particular set of drawings with a particular specification, knowing how big it is and what you get, knowing what it could be built for, that, that, that's the end game. That, that is what will get people over the line or not. But we also know it's not for everyone. And, uh, you know, mate, building your home is like one of the most expensive things you'll ever do you know, by the time you factor in the land. So, you know, we're, we're, this is really aimed at looking for people that are caught in the middle, that know what they would like, they know how big they would like it, and they have an appreciation and an understanding of an architectural style that, they'd, that they want to achieve. Yeah. And so in the marketing around this, you establish it as a separate business. It's got its own branding. From the very start, you guys went pretty heavy on like the branding, copywriting, renders the visualization like how important was that to the process of kind of launching terran super important because we had nothing to show you know we we, we're not going to build display homes you know we can use (laughs) ones that are completed to show people you know in in the future and hopefully you know we we have a project in mckinnon so hopefully that could be used as a as a project but you know using the visual cues of showing bathrooms kitchens the spaces people want to live in you know living areas facades how it would look in a street and really investing in the renders was the biggest single marketing expense that we we could do. And, and that really got people seeing what it is that, that we can achieve and what they, we could create. That coupled in with, you know, LinkedIn and Instagram and and we probably, we ventured into advertising, something we don't do for, for S&K Group, but we actually did it through, you know, Facebook and Instagram to help push and gain some reach. You know, it seemed to work and sort of grow a bit of a following, but... Yeah. You know, officially, we're only four months in in as a business. You know, just to, to promote this product. So patience is the key again. It's it's growth. It's sharing. It's educating. It's you know, and we're in it for the long haul, and yeah. we know it's going to take a few years. And yeah, I think that's what we reminded ourselves is you can, is overnight successes. They're rare, rare, very rare. Yeah. And you know, to create a good long-standing business, you know, just it takes patience and dedication. Yeah, and so again, I mean, you mentioned to me in an earlier phone call that you've found that sort of more of the guerrilla marketing and the direct outreach and the generating that more, that networking approach to things has also been a key aspect with Terran as well. So is that, is that, is that something that you're finding is actually really uh, a great channel for promoting this project a little bit more? Yeah. And I think it stems from looking at your product and seeing who else could benefit product from it. 
And whilst we know the end user is is the is the person that's going to live in it, and they're the ones that are going to you know love it. The end of the day, it's sort of similar to networking. Who's that in between person that will get us to more clients? So because we're not building it, there's no association with you know builders that we can't talk to. One idea. So we've got a whole CRM of builders that we are going to speak to and approach and give them a builders pack, and they can have a look and understand what the cost of these things are because our intel is that plenty of people go directly to their builders and say, I really want to build a house with you. What do I do? And if enough builders understand and know about it then and know about the product, it's something that's very readily turned over in a very short space of time. Mm. Your engineering's included, the energy rating's there, bring your own surveyor and your land survey and you can we can get going because they know how much it's going to cost. Yeah. And on the other side, real estate agents, and buyers advocates or other people that we're speaking to just to help them, you know, potentially provide another avenue to clients selling their land. I mean, how many times have you driven past a real estate agent board and just seen the furry grass with the the map on it? <laughs> you know, you could have a nice render and say, this could be on your block. So yeah. in a very simplistic way. So, yeah. you know, we, whilst we have no other time in our daily lives, we've been investing time to go to meetings, you know, with real estate agents and meet with builders to sort of talk to them about it and, and, start slow and grow a bit of a, a following if you like that's so interesting I, I guess like architects could possibly borrow some of these ideas from as well like the maybe initially when you when you're in that awkward stage in the first few years where you don't have any built projects in your portfolio then maybe the investment in renders is really really worthwhile like because maybe even critical um like that that pack that builder pack i mean what a phenomenal idea <laughs> like there's yeah. so many there's so many good things that you guys are trying there i of the different stuff that you're doing with terra and if you were kind of starting an architecture practice from scratch today or maybe even stuff from sk as well you know what do you really think is kind of a a really strong avenue amongst all of those things if somebody was just going to start small start small so i I did hear this recently from someone else, but and I 100% agree with it, is I think when we first started out, we invested a lot of time and money on our website. Yeah. And, you know, in the first few years of a business, the first three years of your growth phase, really, that's when you start to get identified based on, you know, the types of working clients that, that come in the door. Not, I would say not spending that heavy money on your website first is the right key, having something a lot simpler and then investing everything you can into as many forms of social media that you can is a way that people are going to see you more for a website. People have got to find you. If you're out there on social media, the the nature of paid and organic is going to be a lot more beneficial to getting your name out there and sharing what you do. I mean, I'm not a camera person per se. So TikTok's not my thing. (laughs) And there are a couple of TikTok architects out there, but you know, if, if you, my advice would be that if you're a video person or, you know, you like to be in front of the camera, find avenues that promote you and let you do that. If you're written, try written. If you're verbal, try a podcast, you know, find ways to put yourself out there that, and start with that. And then as your, your identity develops and the type of work and direction that you want to follow, then you can hone in on your website and actually give yourself a stronger base. Yeah, that's so true. Like, overdoing it on the website when you've only got, you know, 15 visitors and 13 of them are you, your phone, your laptop, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and your mum, you know, is not like, is not like necessarily like the most sensible place to put all your eggs right at the beginning. Yeah. So that's really, really interesting. I guess that one f- kind of final thing to touch on is, I mean, time management, man, how do you do it? You've got, <laughs> you've got like a lot, you've got a lot on your plate. How do you, how do you plan it all out? 
Well, I think it's important to note that you have to love it. You have to love what you do. And I think there's a business slash entrepreneurial side of, you know, of what I do that keeps me driven. And I don't, whilst I do work after hours and on weekends, it's quite normal. I think what I've learned to adjust is the amount of time I spend on the business and in the business and surrounding yourself with the right staff and the right people to deliver the right jobs is what will let you do that, which then provides you more time to grow the business, grow yourself. And that's super critical. It's for me, it's a very simple philosophy. It's there's only finite time in the day. You need to spend the time on the things you love and that you want to do, you know, as, as a, as an architect, whether you're sort of the lower level, grad you're you know been in a firm for 10 years and you're a senior architect making sure you're spending the right time at the right meetings with the right people and asking the right questions focusing on what you love and trying to push to do what you love that that's the key and will keep you sustained it's not just for people that are business owners but you know for me personally i just try to spend the time doing what i love and making sure i'm servicing my clients yeah. Well, that's really, that's so interesting. What the thing that was flashing, like the red flag in my mind was that <laughs> I can picture the amount of architects I speak to who would say, but what I love doing is just concentrating on like the design. That's what I love. I don't love any of the other aspects of business, right? Well, Which is a real problem. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is. But, but I would say to that, then surround yourself and maybe bring someone else on board that is really good at doing the other things. Yeah. You know, it might mean that you need to share your business with someone else, but you could be the world's best designer, but if you're the world's most terrible businessman, it doesn't matter how good you are. Like so many architects listening to this, wouldn't you be better off having a Paul Keegan by your side? Like, wouldn't that make your life a hell of a lot easier? Like, <laughs> at the, like at the end of the day, I mean, that's something that it isn't done. Of a lot of firms start, maybe you know, me and best mate want to start a f- firm together, yep. or a, a, a person and their partner want to start, but but that sort of later on stage of a few years in, going, hey, maybe I don't actually love some aspects of some of my business responsibilities. I don't love marketing. I don't love doing this. I don't love doing that. You know, I don't like meetings. I don't like dealing with new clients. I just want to kind of do my thing. I want that independence and that creativity and that whatever. That's why I started a firm and I want to work for myself. But those things, maybe maybe being open to the idea of partnering with, partnering with somebody else is, is can be a really powerful thing. I, I think it can. I do think it's the long, like the longer term game. You've really got to be comfortable with the future decisions you make. But of course. the way to get around the short term of that is is finding mentors. So if you know someone that is really good at business or has yeah. run a successful business, talk to them about some of your difficulties. Could be marketing, could be business. You just might need a bookkeeper. There are plenty of really good bookkeepers that <laughs> yeah. never have to set foot in your office that can do it all remotely and it works brilliantly. Yeah. So you have it's all about surrounding yourself with the right team of people internally, but also the right people around you as that periphery offering. Yeah. Do Do you think that Do you think that you can develop? Have you found that you can develop a passion for a part of bit for for parts of business that you don't love initially? I think if you if your mind wants to take you there and you know to something that you're going to grow and love, fine, it will. But I think if you don't want to do it, it's one thing. But I think you need to understand how to do it or understand how it works. So whilst you may not be the person that you, you, you may not like marketing and you might not want to put, you do your Instagram posts on a daily basis and do your stories. But if you understand how it works, how many you should be doing, how hard it is to actually put one up there, how hard it is to gain content. And you've actually had a little go with it for say a week or a fixed period of time. And then you give it to someone else. At least, you know, the process, it's your business and there's a little control you need to take. You just yeah. don't have to do it on a full-time basis. And I, I personally can't. I can do, I do bits of it, but I have a team, you yeah. know, different people in my team that help me with it. 
Yeah, and I, I agree 100%. There's nothing that makes me more nervous than when I'm talking to an architect and they're sort of saying, oh, I, ha- I hate social media. They haven't done any right, but they're like, I hate it. I really don't want to do it. Is there somebody that I can just hire that will just like do it for me? Or I don't want to write a blog. Can somebody just like write my blog for me? And it's that process of like, you should probably, even if you force yourself to do it long enough that you can learn to understand it before looking to get somebody else. You need to know how it works. You need to know how hard it is to start with because it <laughs> is that new, that new yeah. skill. Yeah. And then if you really don't want to do it, and sometimes you surprise yourself and you're like, oh, I actually can this do it. Yeah, maybe, ways, maybe you know? initially I thought, I don't like this, but I start doing it. And then, you know, certain aspects of it were enjoyable. And then all of a sudden you start to be like, oh, maybe I will keep doing that. It is, but, and you've got to make sure you're trying the things that are real to you. As I said before, like if you're not a camera person, stick with the format <laughs> that means you can do it. But it's the same with, it's the same as business and accounting. It's like you don't have to do the books, but you need to understand how to read a profit and loss sheet and you need to know how a balance sheet works. If you understand how they work when there are issues, at least you have a base level of understanding when you're, you know, accountant or your bookkeepers scratching their head, looking at you funny about what are we going to do or, you know, or, you know, how do we tackle this situation? As long as you have an understanding, that's okay. Awesome. Paul, I think we're coming up on our on our time. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and hopefully it's something we can do again in the future. Thank you thanks so much, man. Much. No, thanks. It was really wonderful and I, I hope it was informative. Well, that was my conversation with Paul Keegan from SK Group. If you'd like to learn more about Paul, you can visit snkgroup.com.au or follow them on Instagram at snk underscore group. You can also check out Paul's new project Terran at terran.com.au or terran.tn on Instagram. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please make sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every second week. It also helps other architects to find the show and benefit from these conversations. So I really appreciate it when you subscribe in your podcast app. And if you have any feedback on this episode, you can get in touch at dave at vanityprojects.com. I love hearing your thoughts and questions. And if you'd like to know more about me, Dave Sharp, you can visit vanityprojects.com to check out my blog, join over 5,000 other architects on my email list, or learn more about my marketing coaching services for architects. And that's all for this episode. I'll see you next time.